spend a few minutes here talking about the Afghanistan situation. As you know, there's been more and more developments over the course of the weekend. Uh, the latest, um, U.S. anti-missile defenses intercepting rockets that were fired at the airport early this morning. So uh, the situation there is tenuous at best. There's no question about that. I think we know, uh, and uh, some U.S. officials saying that these next 24 to 48 hours are going to be some of the most tense yet as they try and get all of their troops and equipment and all of that stuff out of the country by the deadline of August 31st set by the Taliban, which is really interesting because whether we like it or not, whether we can understand it or not, the Taliban is the government in power in Afghanistan. They're they're calling the shots ultimately, and we're now in a position where we are negotiating with the Taliban for the safe uh, evacuation of other foreign nationals in that country that want to get out now that the evacuation effort has ended. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around when you think about what we know about the Taliban, but what do we not know about the Taliban? I think there's a lot. They were around 20 years ago, and then they were sort of on the retreat for a long time, obviously just waiting, biding their time, and and now they're back in power. So what do we know about the Taliban when it comes to their finances? They're the government in power now, so that that's a legitimate question, and it's a pretty shadowy world. So to get some insight on it, we're going to chat with Jessica Davis, who is president of the Insight Threat Intelligence Group. Uh, Jessica, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, when we take a look at the Taliban and we talk about their finances, how much do we truly know about their financial picture? Well, I would say that we have a good overall sort of high-level sense of where the Taliban is getting their money from. So we can think about it like from a macroeconomic level, basically that they're able to tax economic activity within their area of control and influence. So that gives us that general sense of, of where they're getting their money from. But then the specific mechanisms, sort of like what state may be sponsoring them, what private donors may be giving them money, all of that stuff becomes a little bit more difficult to be precise about. Yeah, and I mean, so we have a general picture, we have a, a big picture view. When we talk about it, let's break it down a little bit here. You know, you talk about taxing and, and things like that. We know the drug trade is involved. So where does the Taliban traditionally have they gotten their money? Yeah, a big one is the drug trade. So, and this changes depending on a lot of different factors. So historically, the Taliban has been heavily involved in mostly taxing the narcotics trade in Afghanistan. Um, I would say that their actual involvement in production and refinement is more limited, but it depends a little bit regionally what we're talking about exactly. So there are some Taliban elements who have been involved directly, but mostly at the taxation. Depending on the kind of international pressure they're under and how accommodating or how open they are to negotiating with the international community, they'll sometimes clamp down on opium production in Afghanistan. However, they have never been able to stop it completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of this is because you know, their control over Afghanistan is not total. Right. They're constantly negotiating with other power brokers in the country. Um, they're, they're constantly negotiating with regional power brokers as well. And there are opposition groups to the Taliban. So the control isn't total. So even if the Taliban says, as they've said recently, that they're going to stop or slow opium production, that's not going to be, they can't control it completely. So they they still tax the activity. They will probably continue to do so even when they're trying to sort of quote-unquote clamp down on that. And that is a big source of funds, partly because it's a big aspect of the Afghan economy. Sure. Absolutely. What about... um other things that we've heard about in the past, um, extortion, you know, kidnapping and ransom and things like that. I mean, I don't know how much that would actually add to the bottom line, but has that kind of activity continued over the past 20 years? 
Yeah, and this is largely activity that they've undertaken when they were a non-state actor. Right. So this is where they sort of take on more traditional, we would call them more terrorist financing activities. So yes, kidnapping for ransom. There's a difference in terms of how much they can raise depending on who they grab. So if they're holding basically a Westerner, um, a journalist, a not, an aid worker, they generally you can generally get a, a lot more for that mm-hmm. than like a local Afghan citizen where they're, that's more like a local uh, quick snatch and grab and they're generating smaller amounts of money from that. Um, so there's a bit of scope and scale difference. Right now, I wouldn't expect to see them undertake kidnapping for ransom because they're able to sort of control the Afghan economy more and generate money more from taxation activities. Uh, but it's always a possibility. What about expenditures? I mean, they've, they haven't been government for 20 years, but they've also, you know, they've, they're still a fairly big operation and obviously had a lot of military activity over that course of time. So in terms of the other side of the ledger, what do we know about the money they've had to spend in the last little while? So when the Taliban was a non-state actor, they weren't really responsible for providing security or social services to the population, even when they were largely in control of that. They did a little bit of that activity, all terrorist groups that aspire to state governance do that kind of thing. But their expenditures were more related to things like mounting operations, training camps, weapons acquisition, that kind of activity. Now that they are basically the state, um, their expenditures have gone through the roof. They now have to provide security and sort of other social, what we consider to be social services to all of Afghanistan. They're also fighting opposition groups. So they have to continually arm their fighters, send them on operations, you know, really, like, we're talking, like, traditional military sure, exactly, activity. yeah. But at the same time, aid, international aid, has been largely cut off, um, which is also a huge part of the Afghan economy. So they're going to be facing, if they're not facing it already, a significant cash crunch. And this is where we're starting to see them being a little bit more open to trying to go negotiate or at least demonstrate some sort of negotiating position with the international community, like on opium. What about, and I'm wondering, uh, we know Pakistan has, it's a proxy for them, and they've been involved in that way. So this cash crunch, this position that the Taliban is in, desperate for money, does that open the door to Pakistan, I don't know, maybe Iran, China, Russia, these kinds of groups getting involved, um, knowing that a little bit of money can go a long way in terms of letting them establish a presence there too? Absolutely. So part of the issue is that, you know, particularly Pakistan and Iran have a vested interest in having a stable Afghanistan. There's a lot of really good reasons for that. You know, refugees, uh, terrorist organizations operating in Afghanistan. So they, they have a vested interest in trying to stabilize Afghanistan. So we've already seen Iran resume petroleum exports to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, um, Pakistan as well may find themselves in a position where they want to stabilize the Taliban government, potentially through aid. China as well, because China has a lot of um, economic interests in Pakistan, less so in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. but as a result may find it advantageous to try to stabilize the Afghan economy. So there's a lot of different factors at play regionally. Um, And as people are probably hearing, these are not all international actors who have the same political objectives right. as the United States, Canada, North, 
NATO, etc. So there's a lot of other things at play here as well, where we're not going to be able to necessarily present a unified front against the Taliban. We know that financial activity has been monitored and tracked with other agencies. Uh, you know, when you when you talk about uh, the money that was seized from Iran and things like that. So uh, is that a possibility in this? Or I mean. Do we even know where the money is, where it's kept, and is is there a way to access it? Mm. This depends. This is a, this is quite a complex question. So, for a lot of countries, there's going to be limited engagement with the Afghan financial system. Um, so, I would say that the Canadian exposure is fairly limited. U.S. exposure is a little bit limited as well. Um, but then again, regionally, when we talk about regional actors, that's where we see a lot more of that connectivity. So Afghanistan really gets its international financial connections through Pakistan, through Iran, through other regional actors. Yeah. Um, so when we start talking about the financial intelligence implications of this, these are also, particularly in the case of Iran, just sanctioned entities without banking relationships yeah, yeah. with particularly the United States. So visibility starts to decrease pretty substantially there. Um, there are other possibilities in terms of the European Union and connectivity there, but it does become a little bit more difficult to sort of track the flow of funds and identify assets and resources and where they're held. There is fairly reasonable reporting that suggests that a lot of Taliban assets have been held in the United Arab Emirates, um, and they are largely a cooperative jurisdiction but, you know, all sorts of illicit and nefarious actors use a lot of different methods to obscure where they're putting money. They use, you know, fake names, yep. shell companies, all this kind of stuff. So, so tracking that becomes a very labor-intensive process. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a quagmire. Uh, I really appreciate the insight. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That is Jessica Davis, who is president of Insight Threat Intelligence.